You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. TFM's local watering hole, and I am just one of your hosts, Matthew Rushing, coming at you from Ord Mandel here at Sid's Place, drinking some, uh, well, I, I think they call this uh, Mandel table beer, and the Mandel mix is fantastic, and with me uh, on this episode to discuss none other than Star Wars The Bad Batch Season 2 is the illustrious John Mills. Well, let's just call what I'm drinking Mandel Shine then. Ooh, I like it. Instead of it. Moonshine. Let's call I it Mandel like it. Shine. I'm telling you, the franchising and merchandising opportunities that Disney is leaving on the table with the Bad Batch are kind of blowing my mind. But hey, what do I know? I'm just a purchaser of goods, not an idea generator. That's just me. What are you not do? an idea? Did we not just I generate some ideas there? Oh, no, I'm not paid by Disney to think oh, of these things. I'm just throwing saying, yes. these ideas out there for free. Therefore, it's not my career. I'm just trying to be a helper, <laughs> just trying to help people, trying to bring I'm happiness to the I'm just giving away ideas for free here, people. You know, for free. <laughs> just tossing them out like candy. Well, before we start tossing out our ideas on this season like candy or Mandel Mix, uh, you can find us all over the place on social media. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at The 602 Club. We're also on Instagram at The 602 Club TFM. You can also give us uh, a star rating review on Apple Podcasts, help the show grow. We had a new review last week, so that was great to be able to do that. Uh, and, of course, make sure you subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast, and you will get it as soon as it drops. You can also give us star ratings on Spotify, which is helpful. You can also find us all over the place on social media other than Twitter. We're on Facebook with the entire network at uh, facebook.com slash trekfm. You can also find us online at trek.fm we've also got listeners only discussion group housed on facebook called the babel conference you can join just type a babel into that search field there on facebook and you'll find us you can join and talk to listeners from all over the world last but not least a really important thing we would love to have you do is sponsor us over on patreon so we can keep this network going we can't do it without listeners just like you so go to patreon.com slash trackfm and become part of our team now, John, one of the things that uh, I'm always trying to find a way to do is that when we're talking about uh, a season of television like this, especially The Bad Batch, you know, uh, yes, they're 30 minutes long, but we've got 16 episodes. And trying to find a way that is conducive to talking about that is sometimes difficult. And I wanted to start here with the idea of the season structure, because this is season two of The Bad Batch, and, and this season starts a little bit more lighthearted, I think, than maybe some people would have expected, um, and then kind of builds into a darker storyline. Uh, and I have heard some complaints from people about this, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on the way this season was structured and how you felt about it as you were watching through it. I mean, I don't get the complaint. 
because these are characters that we, we don't have a tremendous amount of history. This isn't like the Captain Rex show or something like that, where we can hit the ground running and everything they do is going to be immensely mythologically tied into everything. Like we're still getting to know these people. Right. And not only are we getting to know them, now we're getting to know them in a completely different phase of their lives. Things have truly had enough time that they've got enough distance on the Clone Wars that they're finding their new identities out there. That's an important thing. Right. And to have a show that has the uh, – the you know, honestly, I don't want to say discipline. I don't want to say – anything too grandiose, but a show that cares enough about the characters to give me time to spend with them so that I can relate to them as characters, as opposed to simply, uh, I mean, like a Marvel movie, the, all the characters in the Marvel movie are simply story point conduits. They're walking bullet points. Mm-hmm. I watch an Ant-Man movie just to get, okay, how are we setting up phase five? Right. How are we, how are we resolving phase four? Whereas this, we're actually getting to know these characters. So I, I, I applaud the choice to, to sit there and actually have a real evolution of the characters. And every, the thing that's funny about that, that complaint to me is when things were the way they ran in the past, people would complain that there was too much focus on story and not enough on character. Right. And now that we have focus on character, people are saying – but I want every single week to be finding mm-hmm. the new Death Star and blowing it. But I promise you, if every single week was that way, people would then complain that there wasn't enough character. So honestly, I don't dismiss people's complaints. Like, we all have preferences. We all like the way things go. But for me, this completely works. And it makes it worthwhile for me to sit down. I get to know my friends. I get to care about right. these characters, especially Wrecker, who's fantastically awesome, and I love him. One of the things I, I, I like that you brought up was that, you know, these are not characters that are legacy characters. You know, they are characters to which um, we are all just continuing to learn their story. And so this show is from their point of view, especially Omega. And because this show is is through the eyes of Clone Force 99 and Omega... It means, like you said, we aren't going to, we, and we shouldn't be getting mythology episodes every week because this show is about them trying to survive in an ever changing galaxy, which means they're not living, quote unquote, mythology every week. Um, they're going to be having these adventures uh, that um, are just a part of their lives, where their lives are taking them uh, and not where some plot pointed story needs to take them right now they don't know it of course but they are a part of the larger mythology of star wars and that's where the season goes so by starting off at at a more light-hearted place so we get interesting uh stories like spoils of war and faster and entombed um you know those allow us to be able to get to know these characters and kind of set up some of the the ideas and themes of like family and everything uh, for them. But at the same time, subtly hint at places we are going to go later in the season as well. We get demonstrations, demonstrations of their capabilities. Mm-hmm. We get 
important moments that convey to us where they are emotionally and mentally. Yes. The, the later crosshair stuff works mm-hmm. as well as it does because we get an earlier bottle episode where he's given that moment. We get to see that beat where he says, uh, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not back in the right horse here. Maybe this right. isn't working the way that I thought it would. And we get that moment, that first seed of doubt. So we get that important beat with the character. And it is something where – what I stick on here is, for instance, you, you mentioned when they, they go for the heist on, on Dooku's planet. That's a character piece. That's a growth piece. But at the same time, it does the world building. It just isn't shoving it in your, shoving it in your face. Right. There's a lot that is inferred by the state of the galaxy and what's going on. We talked about it over on Aggressive Negotiations where it's like this whole thing of this is still the impact of the Clone Wars. This is still a, a shockwave. And even though we're not getting a quote-unquote mythology episode where we're building up to some big reveal, right. the Empire is appropriating all of the funds. The, what did happen to the Separatists afterward? What mm-hmm. is at play here? And that thing even caps off with Rampart shooting one of his clone officers. Right. That's some pretty important world building there, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I completely agree with you. And again, I think what was really interesting for me is that, you know, I I went through and I rewatched the season. And part of that is, you know, it's like been 16 weeks since I've seen the first episodes of the season. And so I kind of just wanted to be fresh. Uh, with everything but one of the things that i was struck by was the way in which every single episode did something to further the quote-unquote plot or and or mythology of this series itself but also the greater mythology of star wars in some little way um and so like you mentioned even the very first episode of the season we set up not only who rampart is and what he's about um but just how disposable the clones are becoming which gets me into the fact that the clones they are i think what i and i'm probably an idiot for just realizing this this season really gave me the revelation that this series is about what happened to the clones because we had be, we had loved those characters so much in the clone wars and i don't know if anybody ever thought right at the beginning of of you know the attack of the clones and then it, even the clone war series if that people were going to fall in love with the clones the way that they did but it, it helps you understand why this series, I think, is so legitimate in Star Wars storytelling because we're answering the question, well, what happened to the clones? And it is of paramount importance, especially this season, what happened to the clones, how they got phased out by the Empire, why the Empire mm-hmm. destroyed Kamino, and all of these things. These are all the questions that we're dealing with um, through the lives of Force 99 and Omega, but also all of these other clones that we've known, like Rex, like Gregor. It is the strength of the show that it inverts things in this way, in that it is focused enough on these main characters that 
the legacy characters become that we that we encounter become these these reference points as opposed to guideposts. And so to your point about seeing things through the batch's lens, through Omega's lens, it's really important because because of the fact that these legacy characters come back and they have this they have this necessary function of being like our north star or our other right. navigating stars to get through so that we know where we are on the timeline. And then in terms of um resolving what happened with the clones and our attachment to them that still is uh that still is from the clone wars there were hints of that right. in the in the prequel movies such as them having you know hearing oddball and cody as names but it really is something i think where it's i i think it's this very interesting and slick storytelling tool that they've used where we can see this sunsetting of era specifically because we're not looking directly at it. Like, right. you know, I know that sounds like a weird way to say it, but you don't look directly at the sun, but you're aware that the sun exactly. is setting. And that's, exactly. that's the sort of feel of the show. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I think one of the beauties, again, of this, this season was, you know, bringing into focus, you know, that we are not just telling the story of, of what's going on with Clone Force 99 and Omega, but we're also filling you in on, yeah, so we all fell in love with the clones throughout the Clone Wars. And so therefore, what happened to those characters? How how did How did the galaxy get rid of clones? You know, why do we go to stormtroopers? And so, you know, I absolutely loved the idea that, you know, the Empire had destroyed Kamino, obviously, because it wants to control cloning. But the idea of, okay, we know that the clones are an accelerated growth rate. There are going to be aging out of being warriors. They're going to be aging out of being soldiers, of course. The Empire is also dealing with the fact that too many clones are are fighting against the programming of Order 66 and compliancy. And so that becomes a problem for the Empire. And then on top of that, you also have senators like Senator Chuchi from the Clone Wars we know and working with Bail Organa to figure out clones' rights as they uh, retire. Where's their pension? What did, what becomes of their lives? And then to watch Palpatine be one step ahead again and take advantage of the situation to replace clones with stormtroopers because of the inability of clones to follow orders, the way he's able to twist that to his advantage is just so deliciously beautiful and it and it seems so effortless and then when it happens you're like well duh it is it is an effortless and beautiful thing the and that that's another strength of the show is it uses a legacy character like palpatine slash sidious in a very judicious way so that when he shows up you go oh this is a super important moment exactly. this is they they don't waste this card they play it when they need mm-hmm. to and I think that uh, in addition to that, 
it's such an interesting philosophical point. And that's another one of the things I love about the show is it introduces these very interesting philosophical points. Palpatine's move is to create the stormtroopers who are not clones who will follow his orders better. Mm-hmm. How disheartening that it's not the engineered life form that is conditioned from the test tube to follow orders that Palpatine can trust, but the natural born citizen that he can corrupt most completely. Mm-hmm. I think there's a very interesting philosophical point with that. Yeah. The clones have to be replaced because of their cost, because the Kaminoans, they were the best at it, and the that they're obvi- the Empire is obviously struggling with creating quality the same way that the clo- that the uh, the cloners on Camino did. And so you have all of those factors, but at the end of the day, it is the people who should know better and have more free will that Palpatine and his empire are most easily able to corrupt. And that I think is an incredibly interesting point that we're all going to overlook and we're all going Mm -hmm. to keep coming back to and go, yeah, well, how did they manage that? Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, we know it's a conversation that's going to go all the way through up to the sequel trilogy. Because they they openly mention in The Force Awakens, oh, you know, you want clones. Oh, well, we've got our our indoctrination program from youth. Which one is better? Mm -hmm. No, I I love that you bring that up. And and again, I think, um, obviously, we will talk, we'll talk a little bit more in depth about the thematic elements of the season, which I think are ridiculously important. But... I love that you bring that up because it really does go to show then why we get these rebel clones, right? They realize what's happening. Rex, Gregor, and others who are working with Senator Chuchi to try and save these clones from the Empire because not they've woken up to the fact that, yeah, one, we were used, and two... Uh, now we're being used in a way which we don't completely understand, but we know it ain't good. And so we've got to do something to, to help ourselves and to help our brothers, um, which is, you know, what this show has always been about really. Um, it harkens back. You, you mentioned a a conversation we had on aggressive negotiations where we're talking about the way in which this show, um, is something that has a deep inheritance from the Clone Wars. And this is one of the inheritances of the Clone Wars, is to continue to dig into these stories um, and to show how, you know, Lucas was always using the prequel trilogy to show us how we go from a republic to, you know, authoritarianism. And this is helping to fill in those gaps in ways that are frightfully uh, a little bit too close to home. And so I really love that we're getting into that. And and the again, like The Clone Wars, this is a show that doesn't shy away from telling difficult stories in animation. Which shows the validity, I think, of using animation to tell important stories. You know, we've we've hit on that before, 
And I, I think we, we do, we need to take a minute to hit on that again, because what you say there is incredibly important for two reasons. One, the animation storytellers are really, really top notch. They're, they're laser focused, hitting it exactly what we're talking about here. Whether it's this, you look at Tales of the Jedi, the most successful yes. storytelling that they have had in Star Wars. And I know the Andor fans are going to come for me with pitchforks and, and torches at this point, but animation remains the most successful storytelling format that Star Wars has found outside of the cinema. That That's it. That 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 is the be-all and end-all statement for me. And I don't understand why they don't lean more into it. Disney, its whole legacy as a company was built on animation. Why not lean into it and give animation, this animation mm-hmm. team, more storytelling opportunities so that you can, number one, reclaim the crown from Illumination, who's eating your lunch right now in terms of connecting with audiences. Yeah. And two, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straight out say it. It is not a cost thing. It's very easy to say, oh, it's a cost thing. But the storytelling possibilities with animation are immediately opened up. Imagine how much freer – you know what? You don't have to imagine. Look at how much freer the animation team is yeah. to go to more locations in a season mm-hmm. than anybody else can. Yeah. Because your only limit is what you can render, which I know has a whole bunch of, you know, cost and time implications. Right. But at the same time, the Bad Batch has gone to so many more places than the Mandalorian ever has the opportunity to. Sure. And they look better. Uh, well, yes, there yeah, are. I said it. There are, you know, Mandalorian season three. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. But yes. It is more consistently amazing the places that they go yes. in animation. Pabu, I still talk about. The the lighting and the water animation on Pabu completely blow my mind. That episode, I I it's one of those things where it's like av- seeing Avatar Way of Water. Like my brain couldn't believe what I was watching. It was like right. what has happened? Like, I felt like I was Rip Van Winkle and I woke up suddenly. Like, my seven-year-old self woke up and was in a a whole new world where I went, I, I didn't even think this was possible to do. And they did it. And so, yes, you know, to your point, in terms of consistency, yeah, I mean, the animation team. I mean, look what they did with uh, Retrieval. It was stunning. Well, and anyway, and, uh, I... Heartily agree with you because I I was just kind of keeping a tally and, and again this is not the full list of references to films that we got but like the Clone Wars referencing other films and genres so these are just some of the ones that I came up with the Lion King Oliver Twist Indiana Jones Godzilla on Her Majesty's Secret Service Where Eagles Dare The Wrath of Khan Aliens Lost in Space like that's just a few of the references that we're able to do here in the animated storytelling right and so Mm -hmm. I I 100% agree with you I think that it is strange to me that we are not um, 
lifting up Star Wars animation to the place that it should be. Uh, like, you know, we talked about the Tales of the Jedi and this. I, I'm i right there with you. Look, this is the best the Star Wars storytelling. And I love Andor, and I think it's fantastic, and I think it's the best of the live-action storytelling that we've been getting television-wise. But animation has continually been doing this since the Clone Wars began. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and Andor just got there. Now, I'm not discounting the fact that I enjoy the Mandalorian and all that stuff. We'll talk about that um, as uh, the season wraps up next week. Um, so you'll hear all our thoughts there. But no, I'm right there with you. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about this, too, because I thought that this was really um, something kind of fascinating about the season. You know, we have one of the most interesting family structures that we've ever had in any kind of story I've ever seen, which is we have all of these people who are legitimately related to one another because they're clones. And Mm -hmm. so we have a, a very interesting family unit. And this season really became about the idea that this group is a family. But the difficulty of these clones who have no experience outside war and soldiering of how to raise Omega, and especially when she reacts to her life changing and Echo leaving and, you know, um, her learning that there is more to life than soldiering, you know, I just, I, I, one of the things I really responded to was that discussion of what family means in Star Wars and how important family is because Star Wars has always been in some way, shape or form about family. And specifically found family. Yes. It's the original Fast and Furious franchise, y'all. There you go. I just enhanced it for you. You're welcome. I will accept thank you letters and gifts. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, But yeah, it's all, it's all found family and even going with – because we, we did our rewatch of The Bad Batch Season 1 over on Aggressive Negotiations, and we talked about the fact that we had a thing where these clones – the Clone Force 99 is the same age as Omega. So there's this really fascinating thing where they're her parents, but they're really older brothers, mm-hmm. but they're not older. They're – in a sense, they're, they're just, just accelerated more, old. Well, they're so more magnificently yeah. traumatized 10-year-olds. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, that that's essentially what it is. Is These are – they've gone through trauma on a scale that Omega hasn't. Right. So in a sense, what's really interesting about this family structure is Omega is experiencing growth and the galaxy in a way that they were cheated out of. Yes. They yeah. never got this. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it makes Clone Force 99 even more tragic. Yes. Because of the fact that they're just – they're witnessing the sort of life experiences that uh, – or the the reaction to life experiences that they should have had the opportunity to have. Mm-hmm. Of, oh, my gosh. Look at what a big galaxy this is. Oh, how do I say goodbye? These guys were watching people get killed on the right. battlefield. Right before this. So that's a really yeah. wild thing, right? And I think yeah. it emphasizes the true tragedy of the clones is the fact that they went through all of this without 
ever having the the opportunity to be rooted in a real road to get there the way that you or I or anybody else would. Get yeah, to have. I mean, and, and I think the idea that they never got a chance to grow up. Mm-hmm. And so they don't know how to help Omega grow up. They don't really know how to show her a world that isn't what they know. The only thing they know, which is being soldiers. Um, you know, they don't know how to introduce her to the idea that there are things like toys, not just weapons, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that that was what was so fascinating about then introducing, you know, characters like Fee and um, the idea of Pabu, where we're allowing Omega's mind to be opened to the possibilities beyond being a soldier. Um, we're also, too, she's seeing how big the galaxy is. Like when she goes to Coruscant and she realizes the, th- that there's just so much more to existence than just being a soldier. Um, and then, of course, the moment that I would say you know, Liberty died a second time. She gets to witness. Uh, She's literally there. Everything that at the beginning of the season had been good or fun or wonderful is being destroyed in that moment. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's incumbent, you know, like we're talking about for these clones to find a way to help her experience all of life, not just the life that they understand, which is part of their existence and growing. Like I, I think one of this the things that's really beautiful there is is giving the opportunity for, um, you know, Tech to experience the idea of romance when he legitimately yeah. has no idea what is going on or how to respond because again this is so outside of who he is that it's you know it's yeah, yeah I, I, I i let me interject on that one too because one of the things that i i love slash hate about this season is they leaned into my expectation it it's the old trope of once the character falls in love you start the stopwatch to the tragedy where you're like, yeah. oh, crap, <laughs> something's going to happen to him. And I like I even joked with myself while I was watching it when they had that awkward goodbye and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's obvious they got feelings burgeoning. I said to myself, I said, oh, oh, crud. I know how this one works. Yeah. Now, season three, we might have a miraculous tech revival, which is fine. And that's also part of the whole thing. But I, I – I loved it because I hated it because it was – it's exactly what I'm used to. And, it, you know, you, you talk about the the references. That's a classic movie trope reference right there. Right. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I know the lane I'm in right now. Fine. I'll go along for the ride because mm-hmm. it's fun and I enjoy it. But gosh darn it. Why would you have to do it this time? You know, like – yeah, it, it, it's like you get on the roller coaster, and the whole reason you feel fear on the first hill, even though you know you're going to be safe, unless you go in one of those dis, you know, disreputable parks, is you know you're going to be safe, but you still get scared, 
and it's the thrill right. of it. Yeah. And so Tech's whole storyline there, you're like, I'm going to go along with this because I know it's going to be a good cathartic thing to get through. But man, I hate that I have to go through it to get there sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's there's something to me that was just really special, especially of rewatching the season and seeing the characters realize that maybe there is even more to life for themselves than being soldiers. Because again, one of the questions that all of the clones are asking is what does life look like for me if I'm not a soldier? I don't even know what that means. And so these clones are in the same position as their brothers of asking that question and yet they're also asking this question because they're also trying to raise a child and realizing that they need to give this child more to life than just being a soldier. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a parenting thing, too. That That's a thing that I really enjoy um, is that when you're a parent, you are trying very hard. You don't always succeed either, but you're trying very hard to stay very cognizant of the things that you wish had gone differently. And so when you are with your child and you don't always succeed, but you're always trying very much not to pass down right to your child the thing that that you know, it's a really weird balance because it shaped you and you think you're an okay person. So it's not yes. terrible, but at the same time, you think maybe a version of you could have done slightly better at things mm -hmm. if you not had a couple exactly. of these things going on for you. And I think that to the point earlier about family and found family and all of those things – What's beautiful about Clone Force 99 is they're very cognizant of not just saying, okay, Omega, you're going to lead a regimented military lifestyle. You're going to live the way that we lived. We're going to do all of these things. They are struggling to find this middle ground. She ha She's there. Mm -hmm. She wants to participate in their lives, which is great, but they want to protect her. They want to give yes. her the opportunity to have those authentic emotional moments that are going to help make her a full person and probably, hopefully, have an even better life than they had. Yes. She doesn't have to put on the armor. She doesn't have to go off to war. But they can take the good parts of that, learn how to survive, yes. how to defend yourself, how to get out of a tight situation. Those are good things they learned. But the other stuff, eh, maybe they don't need to carry that forward. One of the episodes I, I wanted to actually talk with you specifically about um, and mainly because it was such a callback to the Clone Wars and the character specifically there um, was the uh, episode Tribe uh, where we went back to Kashyyyk because we found Gunji who was about to be trafficked um, and they are able to rescue him and then they bring him back uh, to Kashyyyk and you know of course Kashyyyk is being raised to the ground by the Trandosian by the Trandosians who are working in concert with the Empire uh, to 
to subjugate uh, the Wookiees because, of course, we all know the Wookiees to be an incredibly strong race and therefore, um, you know, not to do so would be a detriment to the Empire and a danger to the Empire. And um, I really loved this episode for the way it was able to um, not only serve the connection with the Clone Wars, um, but I really liked the episode for introducing Omega to the spiritual side of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, you know, after that, we see her in the next episode, you know, where Gunji had taught her to meditate. And that's something that she's been trying to practice. And so I really appreciated that, again, it wasn't just fan service okay we want to see gunji alive you know but it was also a way of expanding her horizons of what life is all about yes and i think what you're right on the you're you're hitting the point here where these clones have ever have only ever encountered jedi as great warriors as amazing battlefield strategists. Omega takes away the spiritual side. Yes. So instantly we see a difference there. Yeah. The clones respect the Jedi because the Jedi could help them wipe out battle droids. Omega encounters a Jedi and walks away with meditation, with insight, with a little bit of growth. So it's a different type of relationship and so we see that that new life in the new generation going on i think this episode's also worth pointing out that it's the first time i noticed at least that we switched from stun setting to kill setting Mm -hmm. with clone force 99's blasters and i thought that was really interesting because it became a semi-consistent thing or you know what, I'll just say consistent thing, where the difference in how they used stun and kill was very subtle yes. uh, throughout the rest of the season. And I applaud it because slavers, yeah, okay, shoot them. Mm-hmm. Fellow clones, eh, we're going to stun We're gonna yeah. stun them. They can't really help what they're doing here. I, I think that's a really interesting and very subtle, and they don't call attention to it. They really don't call attention to it. Even when we get to a later episode when Crosshair is trying to get to uh, a place where he can transmit to Clone Force 99 to warn them. And when he grabs the blaster, it's on kill. But before he does something, he switches it to stun before he consciously pulls that trigger. And it's really interesting because, again, that's a philosophical thing with the Mm -hmm. show. I know that's sort of like a, a little detour sort of thing. But I agree with you. Tribe was one where that was the first time it jumped out at me, where I went, oh, the rules are different depending on the the foe that we're facing here, which I think is completely valid and completely worthwhile. Yes. And I agree with you. Tribe is an episode worth pointing to and saying, well, I think there are plenty of episodes like that. The one that I will always go back to is The Outpost. Mm-hmm. that one gutted me emotionally. Yeah. yeah. That one 
was stunning, still is stunning. And I want mm-hmm. the shot of Crosshair with the, the clone, you know, carrying him, you know, walking side by side, supporting him right. with the mountains in the background. I want that shot as a print framed in my office. I want it bad. Sorry, sorry to like it's one of those things where it's like um because with you talking about tribe, it takes me to outpost. It takes me back to the point that tribe was the first uh like real the the, the first real like shot like good hook across the jaw moment in this in the season i think it warms up it has some really interesting stuff it has some really great stuff it has that tremendous episode with crosshair where he's questioning everything but you get to tribe and it's the hook because of what you're talking about where omega walks away with the spiritual side of everything and so maybe one of the things that makes the Bad Batch season two so terrific is it gets us back into that Star Wars spirituality that mm-hmm. exists. That, you know, then pays off through the rest of the season because it, it sort of gear shifts us. Right. And gets us to look for it afterward. I'm really glad that you brought up the outpost because I obviously think that one of the absolute biggest parts of this season is Crosshair's arc. And, you know, where we had left him last season was that he had chosen to be a good soldier, at least as his programming defined it. And this season specifically puts him through the ringer, uh, through his interactions with Commander Cody, who we run into and we find out then after his experience there, uh, ends up, you know, uh, abandoning the Empire. Um, And then specifically you mentioned the outpost with uh, his, uh, with what he goes through with Lieutenant Nolan, who really hates clones, who, who, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and really it's the classic thing of the person who, is hating on something to make himself feel more important. Um, mm-hmm. And when he won't save Mayday in that episode, that mm-hmm. is what breaks Crosshair's programming. And, mm-hmm. you know, when he shoots Nolan, it's that moment where everything the Empire has tried to do to him is gone. Um, all these experiences have finally broken down that programming. And it's such a heart-rending arc because, you know, I think one of the things that I love about it is the way in which the Season allows us to see what happens when we choose to learn our lessons the hard way. And by Crosshair choosing to learn his lesson like this, um, he's not only put himself in danger, but he's put his squad in danger. 
And I really, I, I really loved, you know, of course, he, he tries to save Omega and his uh, Clone Force 99 by warning them that they are being hunted. And so this arc just was incredibly moving to me. And I felt like it was 100% earned to move this character from being one who had chosen the Empire and chosen, quote-unquote, evil, to now being somebody who is who has chosen to do the right thing regardless of the cost to himself. And I think it's such an important thing. This is, again, another reason why I think the animation team has such a special chemistry going on here is the fact that what a lesson to lay on kids. Star Wars was always to entertain and to teach. Yes. Lucas is always Lucas was always the greatest the greatest teacher outside of my own father like ever like I'll never meet the man in my life. I I wish I could just so I I mean I don't even know what I'd say to him yeah, but like I hear you. Outside of my own father nobody seems to have cared so much about shaping me to think about these very important things. And I know that's a really long-winded way to get to this point. But what you're saying about Crosshair here is never at any point does the Batch give up on him. Does Omega give up on him? Never at any point do they stop loving him. Right. Even though he has sided with, in your your own words, and I agree, you know, with evil, with the yep. empire, they still look at him and they say, he is making the wrong decision, but he's still somebody. He's still someone who needs love, who needs to be reached out to, and we need to talk to him. We need to change his mind, but nobody can change his path except him. It's the same thing. That in one single moment in the original Star Wars, Leia says to Luke. Yes, yes. It gets back to that very basic message of Star Wars. You have to challenge yourself to still love someone even when they have chosen the wrong path. Right. Now, does that apply to Nolan? Eh, maybe it doesn't. You can look at you can interact with a guy like Nolan after a day and be like, yeah, that guy's he's not gonna listen. To anybody except uh, any supreme being that he might meet when, when he crosses right. that final line. But somebody like Crosshair, somebody like the other clones who are serving just because that's they're bred to serve, right? Those people, you need to be willing not to paint everybody with one brush, but to look at somebody and say, I still love you, even though you've gone down the wrong path. Right. And I will simply remind you that I believe you can find the right path. Exactly. And Crosshair, I mean, what what an incredible arc. Na I, I defy you. Name to me a live action series from either Star Wars or Marvel or any of the big Disney Temple stuff that compares to Crosshair's. 
in the last year. Yeah, I can't. There you I go. Mean, I, I think um, this is clearly just one of the, the, the best arcs that we've seen in a long time in media. And I feel like it was incredibly well done. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm really glad, uh, that you, you brought it to light like that because it, I think it's true. I mean, you know, again, just to bring it back to a little bit to our conversation there, we were having about the importance of what you can do in animation. And I think this just goes to show animation is just another way, um, to tell good stories, it's just a different medium to do it in. Um, Christy and I were talking about this idea with uh, Super Mario last week, and you know, I, I think a hundred percent, we need to stop discounting this incredible form of storytelling um, in this way. And so, um, no, I'm I'm really glad that, and I'm just I'm overly impressed in every way, shape, and form, as to how good the arc is for this character. And this is a thing that we need to call attention to. And because I think this is something that we will get to when we talk about Mandalorian Season 3, as we keep alluding to. Um, That's how you tease things, folks, just so you know. Is the importance of story editing on a series. Yes, is being able to look at the bigger picture and say, okay, this is how we have to hit these beats. This is how many, like, looking at that, it is so important that Crosshair's arc is just the right amount. It's not too much. Mm -hmm. It's not too little. It's there. It's right there. Because when we come to Crosshair... It's these giant beats that happen. Third episode is so heavy, we have to take a breather after it. Yep. And then the twelfth episode, that is the that that is the absolute that it's not even a gut punch. It's not that is the haymaker. Yes. Where it we have to take a couple of episodes and sort of like get our footing again and be like, I, I what, what what's happening? How do I get to the finale here? And it's that it is, it is lack of a better word. It is disciplined storytelling. And it is something that so many shows are missing to, to have somebody that sits there and says, okay, this is how we have to shape things. Mm -hmm. We have to remember things in the larger piece of everything. Yes, We have to know when to hit this. We have to know when to hit that. Are there moments in the season, for instance, Pabu, do I wish we'd had two episodes to introduce that? Yes, I do. I wish we'd had two episodes for the introduction of Pabu. But I understand we have, you know, a limited amount of this. It's like, what would I have cut for that? Eh, I don't know. There isn't really anything I would have cut. So, okay, I get it. There's the push and pull, but it is super important to have that larger view of how you have to get there. It's very important. Otherwise, you wind up with filler episodes or you wind up with episodes where people are sitting there saying, what the hell am I even doing here? 
Right. Exactly. What does that have to do with anything? Exactly. One of the things that um, this season, of course, is so important uh, in is I think, and I kind of labeled it the idea of the vice that the Empire has put the galaxy in. And I really I just loved how this season continually built that theme. So we've been seeing it, obviously, with the clones specifically and the way they're dealing with the clones. But I mean, the Empire, you know, covering its tracks up wherever they have to when people see the what they're really up to, like with the baby Zillow beast getting loose and mm-hmm. um, the way in which the Empire is controlling cloning now through the Advanced Science Division um, and what they're actually after, John, is absolutely 100% terrifying and again speaks to the way in which this show is touching on timely themes of what does the galaxy want to do through science? Create compliant group think automatons. Yes, they do, don't they? But even if they can't con- if they cannot create that situation, they want to create an atmosphere of fear so intense that people are terrified to color outside the lines, to think exactly. outside what they're allowed to give. Fine. You don't want to do what we say. We're going to make you so afraid not to that you will like honestly it's like invasion of the body snatchers but in the sense that um it's that a, that question from the 70s one with the Donald Sutherland character at the end is he really or is he faking because it's the only way to survive exactly yeah spoilers well, and, for a 50 year old movie and i think i think the beauty of that is is that this season has built into that this idea that one of the ways in which um, the Empire is crushing people in a vice is by getting them to the place where they feel like they have no other choice but to obey. In the same way, you know, the the episodes um, where uh, we had the crew uh, help liberate uh, the mine with Mako, right? Mako was the same type of thing. He made the people the kids working for him feel like they had no other choice other than to to do what he said. This is exactly what the empire is doing. And so they want to get people to this place and we've got them wanting to use the cloning technology uh, and the knowledge from the Kaminoans to um, create this compliant society Um and, you know, compliant soldiers uh, so they can have order and peace through their definition of order and peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, of course, uh, we know that this is all part of the emperor's desire to clone himself as well. Um, and so it leads all the way into what we see in The Mandalorian as well as the sequel trilogy. And so uh, we're really building towards that. Um, and you know, uh, and this all culminates in where we go, Iradu, which is Tarkin's stronghold, finally getting to see that on screen 
in this council of these people who are working on all of these projects. So in different ways, we can subjugate the galaxy uh, for Palpatine. But also think about when you talk about um, Ariadu and Tarkin's summit. Think about the fact that for all of the trappings of everything, for all of the, the appearance of this or that, Palpatine, yes, is a master manipulator, but the real architects of sorrow, of pain, of misfortune in the galaxy are the six people. Is it six? It's uh, two, four, six, or is it seven? Is it six or is it seven? Seven people. It, including it's six Tarkin? or seven. So, a- anyway. I mean, including Palpatine, too, right? So It's the, well, okay, then it, yeah, whatever. Then it's... <laughs> Update. It's a very f- okay. a minute amount. But no of people. more than that. Exactly. No more. N- no, no more. more than that. No it's, less. It's, 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 no more. No less. But it's this idea of all of this concentrated power. These people who are a council of experts who know how to run everything, mm-hmm. because the common person is just too dumb to trust. You know. Yeah. You can't let these people live their lives. They're too dumb to know what to do with it. No, no, no. We have to go in and we have to step in and we're going to control everything and we're going to create a thing that is beautiful. It's the most – what's wild about it is what it always makes me think of – and please bear with me, everybody. I'm a lifelong Doors fan and the guy had problems. The guy – you know, was not perfect by any stretch. But one of the reasons why Jim Morrison in the the age of the, the late 60s, early 70s, always sort of spoke to a person like me is because one of his big things was that perfection comes out of chaos. You can't control life. It's just going to happen. And the more – and again, let's get back to Princess Leia. The more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Charming to the last. But it's true. And you have this council of people who are going to sit there. And what it is, is they're just trying to get down to the minimum number of people for this power to be shared. So we've gone from a republic, which is in disarray, which is a huge problem. It's got all of these issues that are going on. But everybody feels, in a sense, like they have a a seat at the table, in a larger sense. Obviously, the Outer Rim doesn't by the time we encounter it, those sorts of things. But that's the ideal. Then you have this few number of people sitting around a small table. Then we get to Return of the Jedi, where there's one dude, and he's running everything. Right. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like... The only way you're going to get to a perfect society is by embracing the fact that you can't and by letting people be nuts and letting them just be out there and just throw it out there and have the form of ideas and have it go crazy. And so this whole thing with Tarkin and everybody is this complete antithesis of that. And you you see that first inkling of the fact that what it is is it's all just a play for Small people with wicked souls trying to 
control everyone. Yeah. I no, I love how you're saying that and I think that it's it's the thing that plays out here so well and you know we um you know we, we realize too um that this is another way that they're going to get rid of the clones is they're going to use them as test subjects. Um so even more terrifying uh, end for these characters that we've all come to love. Um and one more thing before we talk about the finale, I think there there's another aspect to this which was really fascinating here in the penultimate episode of the season, which was they run into somebody that we know, uh, and it's Saul Guerrero. And I thought the most interesting thing was the difference between Saul and the Bad Batch here. And it's a difference that's going to continue with Saw as we move forward for, you know, the rest of his existence all the way to Rogue One, which is Saw wants to hurt the Empire at all cost, regardless of the cost, with very little plan as to, you know, how that's going to help. Whereas you have the Bad Batch who are actively working against the Empire, but to help others. And there's such a massive difference between those two things. And it's one of the reasons that Saw, of course, you know, continues and stays such a dangerous character for the rest of the time we know him. Because he is so sold out to just this one idea, which is, I must hurt the Empire and it's just a rage thing. It's not really about finding a way to help the rest of the galaxy overcome the Empire. And I, I really appreciated the way in which this um, season really began that theme. So especially, you know, you think if you're watching chronologically, you're going to see that continue with Saw, and it's only going to get worse. Yes. And I love that we come back to Saw, that Saw is our... He's our touch point because that we talked earlier about how, you know, you, you, you keep loving somebody even when they're making the wrong choices. But Saul, right. he's a bigger challenge than anybody else because all Saul's really looking for is what you said to hurt. There, Saul's kidding himself that there's any greater glory or greater goal. If he won the next day, then he would still, I, I, I firmly believe, let's say he survives Rogue One, he's still going to be fighting against the Republic. Yeah. Because they're corrupt and they're doing the wrong thing. And so, there, there's this, this idea that there are people who can be so broken yes. from what they've gone through that, yeah, all they know is how to lash out and cause pain in return yeah yeah no i i i just i was really struck by that and like you i thought it was wonderful to be able to see that play out in this way um and so i the finale john um one of the big things that we get of course in this finale is the fact that Tech makes the ultimate sacrifice. And, you know, 
as of this moment, in all honesty, we do not know if he will be coming back. And so what did you think of us losing one of the members of the Bad Batch? It hurt, and it hurt largely in this sense that it feels inevitable that we will in some way lose them all. Let's call it the Qui-Gon conundrum. That when I see a character that isn't even referenced in a chronologically later story, I think to myself, ah, crap. They're not going to make it. And it makes me afraid for what's going to happen in the future. And so, in a sense, I applaud it specifically because it unsettles me to the point that it makes me more invested in what's going to happen to the rest of everybody. So from a storytelling sense, losing tech is extremely effective. Yes. It hurts and it's supposed to. And the fact that it Mm -hmm. does speaks to the fact that the, all the stuff we talked about with building the characters worked. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't care if I didn't care. And I care because they made me care. And I trace it all the way back. I trace it all the way back to the fact that they made the decision to have him play such a role in faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you suddenly say, ah, okay. And to have him play such a role in training Omega how to fly. Yeah. Yeah. And you say, ah, okay. That makes it sting. And it's, so it's it's great storytelling. It's necessary. Mm-hmm. It make, it reminds me why I do and why I should care about what happens to these characters. And the fact that I need to know that I could lose all of them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved that moment. You know, because, uh, again, one of the things that they're doing is, I think, referencing so many wonderful moments in so many great films across time where a character makes this choice for the greater good, you know? Um, I, I think, you know, uh, of course, like, I, and in that moment, I was kind of thinking of the Wrath of Khan moment, right? You know, um, and it's it's such a perfect moment for this character who I think subtly has become one that I've enjoyed more and more throughout the season. And so then to have him make this decision so that the others can live is just so powerful, especially as this character was just beginning to see what a whole other side of life could be like. You know, realizing there could be more to life than just being a soldier and analyzing data all the time. Um, it it it's great. I think it's just really well done. And you know, I think the other thing about this this episode, which was excellent, was the fact that um, we also finally make good on all the ways in which this season has been building to the story point that Sid is not trustworthy and that she is not willing 
to sacrifice herself for the Bad Batch and turns them over to the Empire. And we've seen it coming, but it didn't make it any easier to witness. No, it didn't. And again, getting back to that making me care about things point, the fact that I felt so disgusted by Sid for what she does, this is very effective because it's the same feeling I had when I was a wee lad and I saw Lando betray Han and I said, yes, yes, but you guys were friends. How could you do that, Lando? And I think the the great challenge will be for them to address Sid in some way without making it feel um, reductive, I guess I would say. You know, like, we all know the Lando arc. We all want it to be the Lando arc. I want Sid to redeem herself. But it's a very big trick story-wise to let Sid redeem herself without making it feel cheap or expected, even though it is ex- it's wanted. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a really weird line to have to walk. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I, I think I appreciated the way in which this series had just slowly built that and then paid it off. And um, I think you're right. It was, it was painful to see, uh, but it really works. What did you think of the revelation that after Omega is captured, she's brought to Mount Tantus, we learn that Emery Carr is actually Omega's sister? I, that, I, I said, what? <laughs> I, you know, okay. Like, that, that, that's, the, that's the great surprise where you go, oh, all right, that's definitely something we have to address in season three. Let's... And, I, and it's no secret, they greenlit the season three, which I'm thrilled about. So, hooray, let's get to it, y'all. Yeah. I really appreciated that we kind of went back to the idea that, you know, Omega was not the only version of clone like this, um, which I think is interesting because her name is Omega, which means she's the end. So I think we all should have assumed then that there was an alpha and maybe Emery is the alpha, um, which would be fascinating to me. Um, I also loved the fact that, you know, the actress, they allowed her to use her New Zealand accent, uh, very much referencing the idea that, you know, Omega has a New Zealand accent as well. So tying those two characters together in that way, I thought was great. So I can't wait to see where this goes. And and I love that, you know, this season is basically the Empire Strikes Back of this show. We know it's going to have three seasons. And we've left ourselves where, you know, we have our our big character captured and now they need to be rescued somehow. And how it's all going to be playing out comes next season and I, I honestly just can't wait um, I did want to ask you just one last thing because you know we make a big deal of this on, on a lot of the things that we talk about but am I wrong in saying that Kevin Kiner is killing it with the music in this show oh come on 
I no, you're not out of line at all. It's it, the the music for this show has been ridiculous. It's been the most consistently. Uh, we keep talking about consistency, but the music is just. Look, Clone Wars and this. It, it's it's the best music in Star Wars right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really truly is. Like th- this is these are cues that do exactly what Williams did back mm-hmm. in the original trilogy and the prequels for me. Which was, I can put it on, I can listen to it, and I, I feel the excitement. Even though I can't necessarily picture things perfectly, I can feel that excitement that goes along with it. I can feel mm-hmm. the sorrow. I can feel the, the joy. I can. It does what music is supposed to do in, a, in something like this, which is convey emotion. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I've loved is that he's continued the trend that he started in the final season of The Clone Wars and using some of those, I would say, Blade Runner 2049 atmospheric type of oh sounds, my gosh, which yes, yes. just totally sell the oh. desolation that the Empire is wrecking on the galaxy, which I oh, absolutely love. Yeah. And so I think it's perfect. Um, and I'm so excited to to know that he's going to be scoring the Ahsoka series, which uh, I think is a phenomenal choice. And so... It's the only choice there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, I, I agree. I, look, man, th- this takes nothing away from Gorenson or anybody else. But Kiner is the... He's the, the voice of Star Wars because the music is so important. He is the voice of Star Wars. I, I don't see anybody else coming in and absolutely crushing these cues in the same way. Like, the, this is something, I mean, maybe somebody could, but I would say, oh, well, that person would have to be mentored by Kiner. This would have to be somebody – it's sort of the, the Han Zimmer principle. Other people come up. like Junkie XL comes up. But he worked with Zimmer and Zimmer helped him get there. And it's like, you know, that that's the sort of thing where I want to see the, um, the mentoring by. Uh, because, again, it doesn't take anything away from anybody else. But But to get back to what you were talking about – the fact that there are certain things that are evocative of other pieces, mm-hmm. but not um, too derivative, that also gets back to Williams. Right, right. Because Williams, you can hear certain things, Born Free, uh, Holst, there are certain things in there where if you listen really closely, you go, ah, okay. I know what Beethoven piece was used as the spotting track here, or I know what piece was used. And with Kiner, I can listen to things and I can say, okay, I can hear where the inspiration was for this piece. I know where this came from, but it's still its own piece. And it's not, it's not so derivative that I can't, uh, exactly divorce from it. No, I, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested, John, uh, what you are going to rate The Bad Batch Season 2. Oh, it's a five-star season. 
I, I don't hesitate. I, I wish there could have been more episodes. And that's the real, that's the real glory of any, uh, any series is you left me wanting more. Mm, that's a good point. Never leave the audience wanting less. Leave the audience wanting more. I want more. Yeah. So give it to me and rush season three. Just, just do what you need to do. Start releasing images now, please. I need some help. <laughs> I will agree with that uh, before I give my rating, which is please do not make us wait like another two and a half years for the next please, season. No. That would be insane. Uh, so don't do that. Um, I'm also going to give this season a five. Um, and, and actually that came with my rewatch and because I wasn't at a five before, um, but with the rewatch, I was able to see just how well this season actually plays together and how well I think that the, uh, you mentioned it. It's the story editing that's happening here, right? And it's so good. The story editing here is so good. Um, I think everything builds so wonderfully, so logically that I just, I couldn't be more impressed, honestly, with how it's done. And so, yeah, for me, this is a clear five. Uh, and I, I, like you, I absolutely cannot wait uh, to see what they've got in store for season three. Uh, but John, uh, I'm so excited uh, that we got a chance to talk about this. I 100%, you know, more than anything, love talking Star Wars with you. And, uh, of course, the Bad Batch. But uh, if people wanted to uh, catch up with you, see what else you've got going on, where would they find you? You can find me out there as Castle Junkie on your social network of choice. I encourage you to look over on Letterboxd because who can get in trouble talking about movies, Matt? Nobody. That's who. I mean, unless you, you can, unless you hate uh, or don't give Rogue One a five, and then, yeah, I think you can get in trouble. Well, gosh, I'm, I'm in for a lot of trouble then. <laughs> uh, but you can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network where I co-host two shows. One is called House Lights. I'm one of three people who watch the works of directors by decade or topic or what have you. We come up with all sorts of crazy combinations and I also have the pleasure of co-hosting a show called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast, which I co-host with you, Mr. Matthew Rushing. Which I do hope that everybody will check out because we have a blast doing that show. Uh, of course, you can find me all over social media under the name Mount Rushing Zero Two. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, and Vero are the places I am most active. So check me out in any of those. Uh, locations. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Saddle Up about Strange New Worlds, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. And this final season is almost over. And then on the Nerd Party Network, when I wasn't doing aggressive negotiations with John, I was doing Owl Post with Dre Kaufman as we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But as always, thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>